Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast. I am your host, Mark Shapiro, and my guest in this episode is Jeremy Kanindike. And Jeremy is a senior policy fellow at the Center for Global Development, and he is a widely recognized expert in global outbreak response. This is work he's been doing for the better part of a decade, and he comes to Explore the Space podcast at a pivotal time. We, we are able to take a really high-level strategic view of where do things stand here in the middle of April of 2020 with the United States response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And we approach this in two ways. You know, one of them from the scientific side, I bring to this a sense of pragmatic confidence and anticipation given the way information is being exchanged, the open source nature of it, the focus, dedication, and commitment of people across the spectrum in healthcare, whether they are in hospitals, in clinics, in the research laboratory, the energy that is being put forward is truly remarkable. On a policy side, there is a mismatch. And Jeremy and I do spend time in this space of why there is so much uncertainty and murkiness around how the United States is responding to the COVID-19 pandemic from a policy level, the disruptive nature of magical thinking that is occurring at the federal level, the problems that we're experiencing with decentralized command, with the delegation of authority to the governors of all 50 states, allowing for this very hodgepodge, mismatched response where there is no real sense of connectivity. It's an important conversation because it's leaving all of us with a real sense of disquiet and concern of what is going to happen next. And when Jeremy and I recorded the episode, we spoke about how at the time we recorded it, likely things would be about the same. We recorded this on Friday, April 17th of this year, and this episode is going to be up on Monday, April 20th, and things are about the same from a policy perspective. However, one of the things that we've seen over the course of this weekend have been open protestation around the country, albeit they are small, they're very provocative, and it's people protesting against the continued need for shelter in place and social distancing. And there's a real sense of anger that comes out of that. And I think everybody who is part of this feels a sense of anger. But I think the origin of it is different. I'm in a region where the curve is flat. And that is because of a number of things, but in large part due to the effectiveness of shelter in place and social distancing. We know that the key that will unlock this, the key that will allow us to begin to move away from shelter in place and social distancing is testing for COVID-19 at a population level, full stop. There is no argument around that. There is no other alternative. If we were to pivot and lift shelter in place and social distancing now without population level testing, the analogy that has really resonated with me has been, it's like jumping out of an airplane, opening your parachute, your parachute is working, and then you cut it away because you think everything is going to be all right. If we were to lift shelter in place and lift social distancing at this point, we would be going right back to the beginning and putting countless more lives at risk 
and countless treasure at risk. The idea that we are not able to do that for me makes me feel angry. So I understand where that comes from. My anger is at a different place. And if you're feeling angry around this, you should be directing your energy at insisting on testing at a population level because that is how we unlock this. Anything short of that, and we are risking lives and risking treasure. It's important to acknowledge that in saying that, sheltering in place Social distancing are extraordinarily formidable. They are also taking a huge toll. There's no question there. We need to move out from under them as quickly as possible. And the rocket fuel to do that is testing, period. Jeremy really frames the pressing need and the urgency around a cohesive response. And we can hope that that is coming. And we talk about how in this episode, we want nothing more than for the federal government to move in an effective manner with the agility and aggressiveness and the ferocity that this really demands. Before we get to the conversation with Jeremy, I do want to invite everyone and you can email me if you would like any time, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. Definitely check out the archive of Explore the Space. If you enjoyed this episode, we are nearing our 200th episode. So please look around through the archive. There's great content in there. I will continue to create more episodes as well. Much will be COVID-19 related, but not all of it. Please find Explore the Space wherever you download your podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Please subscribe. Please leave us a rating and a review. That really helps the show out. Lastly, you can find me on social media at ETS Show for Twitter and at Explore the Space Show on Instagram. I'm very active there. Please come and find me. And definitely check out the archive, as I said, www.explorethespaceshow.com. It was a real treat to speak with Jeremy. The timing was perfect. It's what we needed to talk about and what, and I think you will find it both engaging and also very, very helpful and insightful. So without further ado, Jeremy Kanindike. Jeremy, welcome to Explore the Space. These are important times and I'm grateful that you're here. It's my pleasure. Great talking. I want to, I always like to start at a high level and I think on a subject of the current state of COVID-19 in the United States and around the world, we need to get as high up as we can so we can look around and get the lay of the land. And when I do that, when I kind of do that assessment, I, uh, I'm unsettled and I'll tell you why (laughs) there's a lot of reasons, but the biggest one is, is I don't feel like I understand what's going on. Uh, in terms of our response. We're all learning together on the science side, right? There's a couple lanes to this freeway and one of them is the science and we're learning as fast as we can. And in that place, I feel like personally and in my kind of peer group, my footing is a little bit better. And if I have questions, I know where to go to get them answered. Mm. When I look out at our response to what's happening, right? And today is April 17th. So fully acknowledging things are going to change. Last night, the president laid out the the toll gates, for lack of a better term, of how we will start to reopen America. We 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 look out and we just see a horizon that to me is is murky. And yet I feel like I'm also someone who's pretty well informed and tries to stay well read. Jeremy, I am I'm quite confused. Can you help us start with is that confusion normal right now or am I kind of the outlier? 
no, I think that confusion is is very very widespread, and I'm I'm running into that question a lot, both you know in in terms of the the my work engagements, talking to journalists, talking to other people in the research space, um, but also just my personal engagements, um, you know, talking to family members, skyping with friends. Um, you know, people don't have a clear understanding of where we're going, and. And I think there's there's two reasons for that. Partly because it is just unclear, you know. Objectively, it is there is there is a lot of murkiness here. We've not, in living memory, had an event like this. So there's not some precedent we can point to. I, I'm probably the closest would be for some of the East Asian countries and the parts of Canada that suffered the SARS epidemic. Um, but you know, even that was just a totally different order of magnitude than what we're seeing now. So there's not. There's not a, a kind of a, a commonly understood precedent that we can point to to say, okay, yeah, we kind of we understand how this is going to play out. We can adapt. I think the other reason is, particularly in this country, we haven't really had clarity from our leadership on how this is going to go, how they expect this to go, and how they're going to um, how they're going to lead and support the country through. Through what's coming, so you know most of the most of the discussion, most of the framing that we've heard from the federal government about how we how we get out of the phase we're currently in has had up until yesterday had been time based. It had been you know we're going to be in this for 15 days, and then oh we're going to be in this for 30 more days. So kind of we went from open by Easter to 15 more days to 30 more days. Um, I think at a state level, it's been more sensible. Um, the states, we've been hearing more of a, a conditions-based uh, reopening plan. And uh, and with what we saw from the federal level yesterday, we've now got that from the federal level as well, that they're laying out conditions rather than timing. What I think is still missing from those conditions is a, a sense of how long is it going to take us to meet those and how close are we to meeting those. And I think my biggest concern I have a lot of concerns about the plan that was laid out yesterday. But I think my biggest concern is, uh, you know, saying things like, so in the plan, they have this uh, this uh, list of the core state preparedness responsibilities, which is basically the things that they think the states need to have in place in order to uh, in order to control and suppress the disease on an ongoing basis, although they don't quite put it, they don't articulate it quite that way. But they, the, the list is things like ability to quickly set up safe and efficient screening and testing, uh, sentinel surveillance sites in high-risk facilities, ability to supply, to independently supply personal protective equipment, ability to surge in, uh, in uh, intensive care capacity, protecting the, the health and safety of, of uh, health workers and other workers. You know, those are all good things. Those are all really important things. But what the document says is these things need to be in place without saying how they're going to be brought into place. And so my biggest right. concern is, you know, it's, it, it's, you know, it's fine to say, I mean, like I can say, so I'm going to join the NBA. And, um, and so in order for me to join the NBA, I need to be able to hit a contested three point jump shot uh, on a, on a regular basis. And I can say that I will never in my life be able to do that. And um, so the fact that they say what the kind of the vision is of where we need to get to in this document doesn't illuminate the, the bigger challenge, which is how do we get there? You know, no one, no one doubts that we need more testing. No one doubts that we need more PPE. Frankly, everyone's known that for a month and a half. And we spent the last month and a half unable to do that. So what we need is a plan for how we're going to do that not reminding us that we need to do that. And so, and, 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 you know, moreover, 
really pushing that onto the states, calling that a state preparedness responsibility, which the document really explicitly does. Where is the federal government in that then? Is the federal government just the one saying, hey, states do this and you're on your own, which is kind of how this reads. As I was listening to you lay that out, and that was very helpful, I was reminded of going back to medical school and my psychiatry rotations and a phenomenon that we will use in our sort of lexicon from time to time, magical thinking. Yes. And it's this idea of you you frame an idea for yourself that becomes your reality. Yes. Where it has absolutely nothing to do with reality. And as you, and I, you helped me crystallize where my unsettled feeling comes from. It's really hard to reconcile, rationalize and debate magical thinking. That's right. And that's been a problem in this response from really from the beginning. Um, I, I, it's funny that you say that because I, I was actually, as I was walking my dog this morning, um, thinking about what I wanted to say on the podcast. <laughs> and, and have uh, our dogs but, ever been walked this much in their lives? Our dogs are very, very happy. We have, <laughs> we have a, a newish two-year-old, we have two long-haired German Shepherds. We have a newish two-year-old um, who we got it over Thanksgiving, and he has just love and have in his home. And then we have an old, That's... almost 15-year-old who, this is, you know, these are probably the last months of his life because he's really slowing down. So it's in a way like... It's a bit of a silver lining that he gets to have us around this much during his, probably his waning his waning time. I'm so tempted to just go all the way down the dog pathway, and we could, but let's let's stay where we are. Let's do <laughs> let's do what we're so supposed back to. Back to magical thinking. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, it'll um, be so much soothing to talk about our dogs. But seriously. let's stay where we are, and Mental let's keep moving. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so magical things. So I was just thinking, you know, as I was walking him, I thought, you know, this really like the common thread through a lot of the federal response has been magical thinking. Uh, you know, we saw magical thinking back in the January, February period when um, even as the world was seeing what was happening in Wuhan and then seeing the exact same thing began happening in Iran and the exact or worse actually there and and then the exact same thing, but worse happening in, in Italy. You know, there was not a sense of furious urgency that that prompted here. And it was so astounding to me. It, at the time, you know, I, I feel like I, I felt like I spent the whole month of February just screaming into the void. I wondered about what that. Was I totally wondered about that. I followed you on Twitter for a couple of years now, and I knew your name when I found you on Twitter. I knew who you were because you were a forward-facing person in the Obama administration and your work around the Ebola epidemic and the pandemic response team. This was all in the public record. And it was things that I, as a physician and as a scientist and as a concerned citizen, tried to learn about. So I knew who you were. And then as I you know, enjoyed your threads and your, your comments on social media over the years, it was obviously a lot of the bread-centric stuff I really enjoyed. But I, w- I really wondered and I would see and think to myself, what is this like for people who literally, without exaggeration, wrote a playbook. It wouldn't have been a perfect playbook, but you wrote it. Yeah, and I just to be clear, I contributed to it. Beth Cameron and the team that she worked with at the White House were the, the main architects of that. Um, I contributed heavily to the international pieces of that and reviewed it, and um, okay. a lot of it talked about what my team did. But, it, but you know, we, we had... Like we had a game plan, right? Um, We came out of, so for those of us who worked on the Ebola experience or worked on the Ebola outbreak and and came out of that experience, there was this just fierce sense of urgency about the need to get more prepared. Um, You know, we, the, the, that period of my life is probably the hardest I've ever worked. And I think that's true for everyone who worked on it. Um, You know, it was, it was this, it was a disease doing something we had never seen it do. 
um, on a scale we had never seen it uh, behave. And there was no, you know, we had no playbook. We had no frame framework for how do you fight a viral hemorrhagic fever at scale? Because no one, you know, no one really thought that a viral hemorrhagic fever that transmitted um, transmitted through bodily fluids could could do what happened. Um, the, that outbreak was 67 times as big as the previous largest Ebola outbreak ever. Um, so it was just an entirely different thing. And you know, so those of us who worked on it came away from that saying, wow, if it was this hard to contain a disease <laughs> yeah. Yeah. that you can only get when someone, you know, vomits, bleeds, or defecates on you, um, then what's going to happen when we have a disease that even if it's trivially, trivially less fatal than Ebola, a disease that transmits easily? And, you know, we were very nervous about the scenario we're seeing right now. I think a lot of us figured it would probably be an influenza rather than a coronavirus. But, you know, with SARS, it was it was clear that coronavirus was a possibility. And so so there was this fierce urgency in that last year of the administration to put as much in place as we could uh, to get ready for that and to apply the lessons of some of our missteps on Ebola. The, you know, the, the fact that we didn't have that kind of a useful, actionable playbook, the fact that we didn't have a dedicated team at the White House that could pull all the threads together. Um, and so we tried to set up as much of that as we could in that final year um, and, you know, putting a lot of effort, too, into trying to fix some of the major failings in the World Health Organization. And I think we made some good that we got that on a good course as well. And then it was just so stunning to watch all of that be disregarded when when this all when this all happened in the past in the past few months. And um, and so, yeah, the, the month of February just felt like watching the deconstruction of everything that we'd built um, to the enormous detriment of the country. And, and so, you know, those of us who watch these things and follow these things closely and have worked on these things, I think saw pretty clearly which way this could go. And were very nervous and increasingly almost desperate over the course of the month of February that the country was not ready for what could happen. And, and moreover, was not even talking about how to get ready. The, the big thing, you know, the biggest failure in this, I think, it was the failure in late January to ask two simple questions. Question one, as Wuhan was locking down, as its hospitals were being completely overwhelmed, as people were, you know, dying, you know, possibly even dying in the streets, depending on whether some of those videos were accurate. Question one, could that happen here? And the answer was obviously yes. There, you know, the, the the hospital system in Wuhan was you know pretty sophisticated. They had a a, a pretty sophisticated health system. Um, it was a country that had a lot of health resources. So if that could happen in China, it could certainly happen in a U.S. city. Um, so that then brings you to question two. Well, if it can happen here, if we are equally vulnerable to that as China was, are we ready for that? And there the question or the answer was clearly no. You know, and every exercise we'd ever done, every planning uh, process that we'd ever done, every review of readiness that had ever happened had identified exactly the gaps that we have seen play out over the last few months, had, had identified that hospital readiness would be an issue, that PPE supply would be an issue. Um, I think the one thing we didn't anticipate was the degree to which testing would fail. And I think that was a policy failure rather than a, a bandwidth failure, at least in the early phases. But so it, it was very difficult. And I think it comes down to, again, this ma and, and that's the magical thinking that 
you know, looking at Wuhan and somehow thinking that won't happen here when there was absolutely no reason to think so. I think that that framework you lay out, that's going to be the place where even as we're moving forward, it's our context setting for where have we already been. And hopefully it guides our decision making so we don't do those things again, because obviously we're in the prologue to probably a very long multi-chapter yeah. narrative. I do want to pull out this idea because it definitely resonates with me was this idea of a fierce sense of urgency. And I think that that goes to why so many of us feel so unsettled yeah. is, you know, in, in, in my work in, in the hospital, right? Most of the time we're moving through our process and we're moving through our routines. But if a patient was to abruptly decompensate, everybody moves into a fierce sense of urgency, right? And we have algorithms and we communicate differently and we move faster and we just, everything goes to a much higher level. And we do that over and over and over in my lifetime. We have seen the federal government move to a fierce state of urgency over and over and over. And you can critique the why you can critique the how, but you see them do it now in the absence of that, there are some people who are moving with that fierce sense of urgency, but it's at the state level. And I think that yeah. that's why these people, and I'm speaking specifically about governors like Governor Whitmer in Michigan mm-hmm. and Governor Newsom in California and Inslee in Washington and, and others, they're moving in that way. Governor Cuomo in New York, they're mm-hmm. moving with that fierce sense of urgency. It feels like, in large part, that is really resonant. Regardless of the steps that they're taking, they are taking steps. Does does am I reading that right? Am I kind of reading the impact that the that their moves are having? Am I understanding that correctly? I think there's clearly urgency from the governors in, in the states that were hit early or have been hit hard. And I think Seattle and California are coming out of this looking reasonably good. You know, they acted earlier than just about anybody else. Um, so I think that, you know, the, the city of Seattle comes out of this looking pretty good. And, and it's a, a bit of a surprise in that, you know, they were the, the first place where a cluster of cases was found. And it became clear pretty quickly through some of the research that Trevor Bedford uh, and his team had done that that cluster of cases likely traced back to the original U.S. Uh, case in in mid-January. So there was a concern then when they found cases there at the end of February at the end of February that Seattle was already on a pretty bad trajectory and would have a very very large outbreak. And they have had a large outbreak, but it's been nothing like New York. And I think what that comes down to is the fact that they began almost immediately uh, deploying social distancing measures once they once they identified that first case. They had their first case, I think, on the 28th or so of February and their the first death within another day or two of that. And that really that really um, sparked a lot of urgency from the mayor and from the governor. Uh, I did an event with the the mayor of a webinar with the mayor of Seattle a few weeks ago, and she talked about how, you know, because they have travel links, so many travel links to Asia and and just such a you know such an international area. As soon as they saw what was happening in Wuhan, they did begin posing themselves those questions I talked about earlier. They did assume that cases would show up there, and they did assume they needed to be ready. And so, you know, they they were not thinking magically; they were thinking realistically. And when they began detecting cases, unfortunately, later than you know would have been ideal because uh, they some of their local labs were blocked from doing their own testing by the federal government. But by the time they did detect those cases, you know, they had an idea 
on what they needed to do and they triggered it very quickly. And I think that goes a long way towards explaining why, despite starting earlier in New York, they've ended up in a much better place than New York. And, you know, with New York, there was not that sense of urgency, certainly from the mayor. Mayor de Blasio was still, you know, into the mid, you know, kind of the middle of, of March. He was still ch- talking about holding the St. Patrick's Day parade, which would have been an absolute disaster. And if New York had acted as Seattle did when they saw their first cases, uh, I think they could have been better off. But what you also need to do then is you can't, you know, there's. You can put some of that on the mayors and you can put some of that on the governors, but I think you have to put a lot of that on the federal government because no mayor comes into their job thinking, okay, well, what's my pandemic readiness plan? They probably, you know, (laughs) coming out of this, they probably should, but that's always been, you know, that sort of function, that sort of like extreme public health scenario, that's always been something we expected the federal government would lead on. And, and so when, when the federal government had spent, the whole month of February, reflecting that magical thinking, saying things like, you know, the risk in the U.S. is low, uh, the situation in the U.S. is under control. We now know that neither of those things were true, but they, you know, they made it, they disincentivized readiness because it was easy then for a mayor or a governor who wasn't very familiar with these issues, wasn't very familiar with how to understand these risks. They could look to the people who did do this for a living, you know, the Health and Human Services Secretary and, and the senior officials in the administration. And, and, you know, what they were hearing from them is the risk is low, the situation is under control. And so then that that's a signal that you don't need to prepare very urgently. That's the central tension that you just described. And I think that that's a, a large part of why I and so many others feel so unsettled about what's happened in the last few months. <laughs> I think... It's also clear that that sort of decentralized command that the federal government has chosen to delegate authority and responsibility to the state and local level, that is going to be the road forward. And that was made very clear last night. It's the headline of the New York Times last night when I was going to bed is that the call is for the governors to move forward with their own respective plans. At least we have clarity now, but it's going to make for a very heterogeneous, a very mixed and choppy response. And some states and some regions are going to do much, much better than others purely because of that. And that does not feel right to me. I I couldn't agree more. Uh, You know, we need we need a consistent national response. Yeah, Um, we and the best the best analogy I've I've heard for this. And I I think it was Bill Hannage at Harvard who, who, who said this. The president has talked about this as a war. And that metaphor of, you know, we're going to fight this like a war. It's going to be the largest, I think the president said yesterday, it's the largest national mobilization since World War II. Well, we didn't leave the national mobilization in World War II to each individual state. Right. We don't go to war with each individual state. You know, when we, whatever you think of the Iraq invasion, I was, I was not a fan. We didn't invade Iraq with each state and each governor commanding their own battalions. We went to war as a single unified national military because it would not make sense to have 50 sets of of standards, 50 different independent decision makers, um, each going under their own authority when you go to war. That doesn't work. And and if it doesn't work for, for going to an actual war, it also isn't going to work for going to this kind of a war. And it is it is so perplexing. Well, it's not. I mean, I understand why the president's doing 
Yeah, but the president, you know, the president is, is doing that not for reasons of effectiveness, but for reasons of political cover. And that and that is the most infuriating thing. It's, is, it's risk shifting, right? It's it's, it's it is risk shifting. He is, yeah. he is he wants to take the political hot potatoes and throw them at the governors rather than hold them in his own hands. And it's and it's astounding. You know, as someone who's worked in the federal government um, and I did not deal extensively with President Obama. I wasn't quite as important as that. But I did meet him a few times. And, you know, one thing that was really striking, I think, out of the Ebola experience was that was a problem that the president didn't have to choose to own. He could have chosen to say, look, you know, this is WHO's problem or we're going to let some, you know, we're going to let somebody else deal with it. It was a it was a problem that at the point he chose to own it, which was, you know, in that kind of August into Jan- August into September of 2014, a period when it was really exploding in West Africa and and, and killing a lot of people. We didn't actually know what the solution was at that point. So, you know, he chose to own that problem at a time before it was clear that it would be a political win for him. And I'm not sure in the end it was a political win for him. I, think it, you know, I don't, I would say um, it probably wasn't, but it, it was still the right thing to do. But it was the right thing to do. And without it was a doubt. Still, let me put it differently. It was not clear at that point we had a path, we had a plan that could succeed. Yeah. And at that point, you know, he chose to own it. And I had actually, I had, a, I remember very vividly a conversation I had with one of my senior team members who had spent, this was somebody who had spent at that point, probably 30 or 40 years doing international disaster response. And, and he'd never seen anything like this before. And he was very uncomfortable. He said, Jeremy, like when, you know, when you send me to an earthquake, I know what to do. I don't know what to do here. And I'm not sure we're going to succeed. And I think that was the feeling amongst a lot of us. We, we had a degree of faith that we would find a way through it, but we didn't know at the outset what that way would be. And it was at that point that the president chose to take this on, put his own stamp on it in a very public way and own it. And I think that that is something, you know, it is, it is highly unusual in U.S. history that you have a massive national crisis of the kind we're seeing right now. And you don't have the president say, I take responsibility for getting this done. Jeremy, he said exactly the opposite. Exactly. <laughs> literally the exact opposite. Literally and, the exact opposite. Literally. And I mean, look, I, I'm obviously not a politically impartial person. I served in a Democratic administration. Um, but on this kind of thing, you know, I, I do want to see the government succeed. And oh, absolutely. You know, I think everyone does. You know, I, I have I have members of my immediate family who are high risk. I think a lot of people do. Probably everyone does. You know, we need this response to succeed. And and I just don't see how that happens if we don't have effective federal leadership. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And a couple of things that I'll just pick up on. Number one, I and everyone else wants the federal government to succeed because that yeah. means less people die. It Absolutely. means less treasure is squandered, less generational damage is yeah. done. Yeah. I will yeah. also say I am excited for us to move away from describing people as high risk, medium risk, low risk. That's also been part of what's been confusing yeah. and obfuscatory. Mm-hmm. We're all high risk. It's a great point. COVID-19 does not discriminate. It, it has shown itself to be able to cause terrible harm and cause the death of people of all ages. Yeah. And for us to stay in a place where we're using those terms, we're falling yeah. into a trap that, that yeah. guided some of the problems that we're, we're dealing with now. And I think, though, just looking back and just juxtaposing what's happening now with what has happened over the course of American history, this isn't this this decentralizing of command in the midst of a disaster. That's a that's an abdication and a failure of leadership. And it's nothing else. There's no yeah. 
there's no good counter argument to that. And I've had this conversation with a lot of people and people who I have previously found to be pretty intractable in their views are in full agreement. They're like, this is not, this is not what's supposed to happen. I am used to the federal government stepping forward yeah. and helping us yeah. Yeah. get better. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, and going back to that pandemic playbook that the, the, we developed at the end of the Obama administration, we actually said that very explicitly. Yeah. Um, because you know, we do have, you can, atypically amongst wealthy nations, we have a very decentralized health system in this country. A lot of the authority. <laughs> yes, we do. I don't, have to, I don't have to tell you that uh, or, or your audience. Um, uh, a lot of the authority and a lot of and, and um, the decision making does re- doesn't rest at a federal level. It rests at a state and a local level. You know, hospital regu- hospital regulation is mixed, but happens to have way to state level and so on. But as and we said this explicitly in the document. Despite all that, if there is a major national crisis, there will be an expectation that the federal government will lead it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and that it's not in the Constitution, but we're used to it. Right. That is I think that was everyone's expectation, whether it was Katrina or when I was a kid, you know, nuclear war readiness and having programs where we're practicing getting under our desks and all of these. We're used to that. And that that's part of what is so unsettling. I'll share with you, though, another thing that I have found unnerving is the in the same idea of blame shifting, and I don't want to spend time too much on what has already happened, but it, I think mm-hmm. it is important because it will frame the road forward. That's exactly right. Pivoting narratives to hammer other entities as opposed as part of this lack of responsibility taking. And now the target is the World Health Organization or the WHO. Let's acknowledge that like any monolithic bureaucracy, of which there are many around the world, it is imperfect. Yeah. Its mission yeah. is essential. Yeah. And we we need it. It's the tool in the toolbox that we have. When we start talking about chopping off one of its legs financially, wh- where does that put you in uh, as, as someone who has worked with the WHO and has an understanding of at least what the mission of the WHO is supposed to be? I, I think it is a hugely damaging and hugely counterproductive decision if it is if it is taken forward. The WHO is a very imperfect organization, and you know there's an old um, kind of there's an old saying about democracy. I forget who originally said it. That it's, I think it was was it Churchill that said Churchill. I know what you're going to say. It was Churchill. Yeah, yeah, you know totally. what I'm going to say. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's the worst system apart from all the others. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. And and it's you know I, I feel the same about the United Nations system in general, and about the World Health, Health Organization in particular. Um, I'm someone who comes from a, a background, professional background in international disaster assistance. I've spent a lot of my career, really all of my career, dealing with the United Nations bodies, and they drive me crazy. They drive me absolutely crazy. I think they drive <laughs> most of the people who work there crazy as well. But we need them, and we need them to function, and we need them to work. And and so I've been I've been very closely involved with reforming the World Health Organization for the last five years, uh, coming out of the the experience with Ebola, where they they uh, they bungled that very badly, especially during the early phases. They they improved then as they went along, and I think by the end of that response, they were doing a, a much much better job. But, but you know, in the early phases, they dropped the ball very badly, but it was not only them who dropped the ball very badly. I think it was also the world's expectation that the World Health Organization would be on top of it when we had not built them to be the sort of organization that could that could do that. 
So, you know, there was this expectation in the early phases of that, of, of the 2014 Ebola outbreak that, yeah, okay, you know, another form of magical thinking almost of, you know, WHO and Doctors Without Borders and, if, you know, a few of these other humanitarian organizations, they'll, they'll deal with it because they've always dealt with it before and it'll be fine. You know, the reality was at that time, WHO was predominantly a technical organization. They were very dysfunctional. They were very weak in the three countries that were affected. Had very weak leadership there. And um, and so, you know, it wasn't just that WHO screwed it up, which they did, but it was also that, you know, we had the wrong expectation of what WHO could and would do. And so I then have spent the last five years working with others to try and rectify that. Um, I initially um, pushed very hard when I was still in the U.S. government. I pushed very hard to um, for to, to kick off a process of, of WHO reform. I was then invited by the director general at the time to sit on an advisory group that helped her to design a major internal overhaul of the organization to create a new program in health emergencies. Um, and then uh, subsequently was invited to sit on the oversight board for that program, which I've done for the last four years. You know, it has been a really fascinating process to watch and to be part of. I, you know, they have created a legitimate operational emer health emergency response capacity in that organization over the last five years that did not exist before. And probably the clearest example of that is what they've been able to do in Eastern Congo over the last few years with the Ebola outbreak there. WHI and I traveled out there about exactly a year ago, actually, um, on an oversight mission to to uh, to assess how that response was going and to assess how WHO was performing. And they had deployed, I think it was 700 international personnel. They'd pulled people from all over the world. They'd pulled, you know, the people who were heading their country offices from different parts of the world and put them in role-playing roles on this response. I mean, that was how much priority they were giving it. And um, and so they had rolled out a huge footprint there to fight that disease, something that would have been like almost science fiction level unimaginable just five years prior. So, so they had the, the trajectory in their emergency response capacity over the last five years is very positive. There's been a lot. There is a long way to go. There's a lot they still don't have in place. There's a lot they're still getting wrong. But the trajectory is very positive. And so it is. It's infuriating then. Uh, to have people who haven't kind of haven't followed WHO closely over the years don't really understand the, the reform trajectory of the organization uh, and don't still you know don't understand what the organization can and cannot do what what it is and isn't built to do now saying in effect it's a you know it's a dysfunctional terrible organization shut it all down the specific criticisms that you hear from the administration which basically boiled down to WHO was too slow to confirm human to human transmission. They didn't push back hard enough on China and they opposed the travel bans. You know, all of those are things that flow from how the member states manage WHO. So, you know, the, the deference to China is not unique to China. <laughs> WHO is equally deferential to the government of the Congo uh, on Ebola. They are equally deferential to the U.S. government right now, despite the, we, the fact that we are the epicenter of the global outbreak and doing a poor job of containing it. Um, so the, you know, the WHO is deferential in that way because that's what their member states have built them to do. And um, they could not 
question or, or kind of independently investigate China's initial assertion that there was not evidence of human-to-human transmission because, again, we haven't built WHO to be able to independently investigate member states. Um, and if we did, they would not just do that in China. They would do that here. They would do that everywhere. And, and that might not be a bad thing, but it's not what we built them to do. And so criticizing them for not exercising a capacity that their member states haven't authorized them to have is a little ridiculous. That's the most helpful discussion of the WHO that I've gotten in a while. And I appreciate it because I don't want to just be angry for the sake of being angry. I want to understand why I feel that way. And I have a better sense now hearing you lay that out. Uh, And it's helpful. That's why we, that's why we do this work. We've, we've spent some time on dark stuff, on challenging stuff, on frustrating stuff and emotions that none of us like to have day after day after day. Let me ask you then, as we move towards being done with this first time you've come on the show, and I say that intentionally because it hopefully will not be the last, where, where are you seeing things that, that give you a sense of, if not, everything's going to be fine. That sense of hope, a sense of lightness, even a sense of humor. Yeah. Humor. I don't know about humor. I think I, so. One of the I think what is a is a positive or it's hard. Yeah, it's no, really I mean, hard. I can think about it. It's it's not that hard. Okay, good. What, what I have been inspired <laughs> by, and um, what gives me hope, is that you know most of the country gets it. We're not seeing. We're not seeing people, you know, apart from a few, a few uh, outlying examples. We're not seeing most of the country say, "Why are we doing this?" We're not seeing most of the country resist the shelter-in-place orders. You know, people understand this. They understand why they need to change their behavior in order to protect their loved ones. And I think that we that was not so clear. That that took a little while to sink in over the course of March, but it's clearly sunk in now. Um, and that is really key because the, the, the key to containing any disease outbreak is not medical treatment. Sorry. It's not um, just government leadership. It is also human behavior. Every outbreak, every complex outbreak that I've seen, whether that's Ebola in eastern Congo recently, whether that's Ebola in uh, West Africa a few years ago, you know, the thing that turns the tide is when... when People at an individual level and at a community level understand what they need to do in order to stop the spread of the disease, because it is, it is those everyday behavioral choices that spread the disease. And so if, if enough people understand how to make different behavioral choices, that can have a real impact. And I think we're seeing that. And so that that does give me hope. I mean, there's a long road ahead. And you know, that is, a, I would say, it's a necessary but not sufficient condition for ending this. But there, at least, we've seen real, real progress in the last few weeks. We have seen real progress. And you're right. And the, the, you know, the headlines and the video clips that go viral on social media, it's important to remember that those are just tiny little nuggets of what is actually really happening. And yeah. you framing it that way is definitely very helpful. I'll share with you what mine is. And it's the extraordinary information sharing in an open source manner from all of the people who do their work in the right way. Scientists, anthropologists, public health servants, everybody is doing this work in a way that is transparent, is available, and the commitment to communication and education is extraordinarily exciting. 
Yeah, I think that the scientific cooperation has been really has been really striking. Uh, you know, you've seen scientists cooperating through social media, through preprint servers in ways that are, are really kind of unprecedented. And I think there's a similar thing uh, in the policy space. You know, I, as someone who have been working on pandemic research for several years now, uh, come out of a um, you know come out of having done that in the government as well. I have connected with so many more people in this field that I had, you know, never come across through social media, through, um, you know, through kind of extending my professional network. Um, and it's been so enriching and so helpful and so illuminating to have access to like real style, you know, through Twitter to the real time intellectual feeds of all of these incredibly smart people and understanding how they're thinking about this crisis. And, you know, it really, I think is an important contribution as much as Twitter drives me crazy sometimes. Um, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's a really important contribution to how yes. we do crisis management in, in, in an interesting way. We're going to have to think about how to continue to hardwire it because it yeah. is, it's part of how we're going to respond going forward. And I, I would, I would bet if you were to reflect on the pandemic response playbook that was written five years ago, how you would amend it, what the appendix for using social media, what that would look like. It would be a really interesting kind of thought exercise because we're in the middle of it right now is how are we yeah. using these tools effectively and how are they also hindering us? Yeah. But, yeah. but speaking of social media, right, that's where I found you. I found you on Twitter and I love your Twitter feed. I find it both Thanks. incredibly, um, informative. I find it inspiring. I find it infuriating. I find it exciting because you talk about the breads that you bake. It's all of those things. So I, I get a lot from it. Where do people find you on social media and where do they find your work? I, I, I am only on Twitter. I don't do Instagram. I, I have stopped using Facebook, but I am on Twitter and uh, my, my work, my publications are uh, on the Center for Global Development website, so cgdev.org. I've got a page there that lists all of my uh, all of my work writing, and then I do a lot of op-ed writing and so on as well. Most of that's also captured on the website, so it's we'll it's have, all there. Yep. It's all there. We'll have links to it in the show notes for this as well. Who is one person or one entity that you would like more people to be following on Twitter? Oh gosh, I don't know if I can keep it to just one. You can give more than one. That's fine. Um, I have been, I've gotten so much just great information and great perspective from some of the, the, there, there are a number of scientists who are really effective communicators and effect, you know, effectively cross over between the science and the policy and strategy. Um, so you know, some of the ones that I follow on Twitter uh, would be uh, Angie Rasmussen, who is a virologist at Columbia University, uh, Tara Smith, who tweets under etiology, um, and she's a, a, a virologist in um, uh, in Ohio. Uh, oh, let's see, uh, Trevor Bedford in Washington State, who is a, a, a researcher and one of the one of the folks who was instrumental in finding the initial cluster of cases in Washington State, Beth Cameron and Rebecca, Beth Cameron of the Nuclear Threat Initiative Bio Division, and Rebecca Katz of Georgetown University, who have been close collaborators of mine on some of the projects that I've been working on during this response, Josh Michaud from the, uh, from the Kaiser Family Foundation, and Jen Cates from the Kaiser Family Foundation, who do great work on budget and policy, um, Saskia Popescu, uh, from I think she's in Arizona, and Syra Madad, who is the 
the head of special pathogens for New York City Health and Hospitals. Uh, you're just tremendous scientists and practitioners who are, you know, you, when you follow a, kind of that that kind of a cluster of people, you can begin to get a, a more robust and holistic sense of how all those different pieces come together. And yeah, and it's usually, usually useful. That's great. And I'm going to go through and do a little homework. Some of those names I recognize, some I didn't. So I'm excited to add them to my curated follow list and we'll yeah. have their handles in the show notes as well. I, I, you know what? It occurs to me I've, I've missed all the Hopkins people. So I'm also going to say Crystal Watson, Caitlin Rivers, and Jen Mazzo at Hopkins. Fantastic. I will, uh, we'll, we'll add them to the list as well. That's a great, it's a great list and I appreciate that. Jeremy, thank you. You, you, you carry a ton of expertise with you. There's a ton of work yet to be done and your insight into the road that we've been walking and, and helping to shine some light on just the road that's under our feet right now is incredibly useful. I'm, I'm grateful to you. This was fantastic. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks. It was, it was uh, great to talk to you. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.